Please take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 4. Here at First Baptist, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke, and today we find ourselves in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 37. Just to refresh uh, your memories and make sure we're all on the same page, remember Luke starts off his account of Jesus' Galilean ministry by telling us about the time that Jesus went back to his hometown of Nazareth. And that's in verses 16 through 30. Uh, Word has spread about him. He's kind of like a a homegrown celebrity. And he is assigned to teach that Sabbath day at the synagogue in Nazareth. And so Jesus gets up and reads what we would call Isaiah 61. uh, Verses about the spirit-anointed Messiah and how he would come to proclaim good news to the poor and liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and uh, set at liberty those oppressed. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Uh, Basically, I am that spirit-anointed Messiah. And that is what I have come to do. And the initial reaction is positive. Uh, The people marvel at his words. But that praise quickly turns into contempt and unbelief as they try to reconcile the spectacular claims that he's making with the fact that he's the local carpenter's son whom they've known his whole life. Isn't this Joseph's son? Which then leads them to demand that Jesus prove himself by doing for them some miracles. What we have heard that you have done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. But Jesus refuses, and in doing so, he gives them two Old Testament illustrations, one about Elijah and one about Elisha, uh, to show how God, in the past, has passed by his own people because of their rejection. And so, in the same way, Jesus is going to pass by his hometown because of their rejection. Of course, they don't like hearing that, and so they try to kill him, but uh, Jesus' time has not yet come, and so he just kind of passes right through them and leaves town. And he doesn't do any signs or miracles in Nazareth uh, besides his walking right through the murderous crowds to safety. But he is going to do miracles elsewhere, as we're going to see in our narrative today. But our story isn't just about Jesus doing kind of any miracle. I know Luke is going to show Jesus performing a miracle that specifically demonstrates how he has come to fulfill that prophecy from Isaiah 61. That Jesus has come to proclaim liberty to the captives and to give release to the oppressed. And he's going to do that through a story of Jesus performing an exorcism on a demon-possessed man. Now, when it comes to the spiritual realm, things like angels and demons and exorcisms, I think we as uh, Christians, we can tend towards one of two uh, extremes. On one hand, you have the people who will write off the spiritual realm entirely, just completely ignoring it. And thinking that this physical world, right, what we can touch and, and what we can see with our eyes and what we can explain with our senses... Well, that's all that we need to be concerned with. 
But there's two problems with that kind of thinking. Uh, First, the uh, Bible is very clear that the spiritual realm is real, uh, that it is important, and that it is relevant. And you can ignore it all you want, but just because you ignore something, that doesn't make it any less real or important or relevant. You can ignore gravity all you want, but that doesn't mean that you can fly. It doesn't mean that it doesn't apply to you. And second, if you just choose to ignore the spiritual realm, well then what do you do, as a Bible-believing Christian who believes that the Word of God is true, like what do you do with accounts like the one we're going to cover today? And what do you do with passages like Ephesians 6, in which Paul tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Like, if you're going to be a faithful student of the Bible, you cannot just write off or ignore the spiritual realm. And so that's one unhelpful extreme, to completely ignore it. On the other hand, you've got some Christians who can go to the other unhelpful extreme, Uh, becoming almost obsessive about the spiritual realm. And so they think, for example, that anything and everything that happens to them is directly caused by the spiritual realm. Like there's a demon literally behind every problem and every affliction and every trial. I remember once came across this thing online about uh, demons that specifically interfere with electronic equipment. And so the, I guess the explanation here is that uh, any problems that you're having with electronics, uh, it is caused by that specific demon of electronics. And so for example, you guys remember that light bulb that was flickering for many months, right? That would be blamed on the demon of electronics. And so according to this writing, uh, you would need to command the demons to leave uh, the light bulb or whatever it might be. Uh, FYI, we just changed the light bulb and it's fine now. Uh, You can see how that's a potential pitfall as well. It can lead to an unhealthy paranoia, uh, an unhealthy fear and trepidation, like there's a demon around every corner and in every situation. But second and more importantly, uh, an unhealthy focus on demons can take our focus as believers off of where it should be, which is on Christ. And so even in this story, Right, that we're going to cover this morning. If we are overly focused with the demons and with demon possession and exorcisms and things like that, it is very possible that we miss the main point of the story, which is what Christ has come to do as the Spirit-anointed Messiah. And so two extremes to keep in mind, right? and both are unhelpful, but more than just kind of being in the middle for, sake of, for the sake of being in the middle— Uh, we ought to think about what is uh, biblical, right? We want our understanding of everything, including the spiritual realm, uh, to be grounded in what God says in his word. And so with all that in mind, uh, let's read the text now. Uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 37. Uh, We're going to read the text, and then I'm going to explain what I think it means, and then we're going to give you uh, some application from this text Uh, Like how this text should change how we think and how we live. And we're going to have four application points along uh, those lines. So look along as I read. This is the word that uh, God has for you today. 
And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out in every place in the surrounding region. Let's pray once again. Father, give us eyes to see the glory of your Son from this text. And give us soft hearts that will receive it and respond in faith. Please help me now as I preach your word to your people for your glory. Amen. So what we have here in this narrative is a good old-fashioned exorcism. And we'll have a lot to say about that in just a minute. But before we get to all that, right, let's notice where Luke begins this account in Capernaum. He begins it with Jesus' teaching. And so this is just like Nazareth, right? Once again, we find Jesus teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, it doesn't say, like, what he taught. Uh, Presumably, he's not teaching about, like, head coverings. Uh, It's probably very similar to what he taught at Nazareth, right? Teaching the people that he is the fulfillment of the promised Messiah. And so maybe the text is Isaiah 61 again, or maybe this time it's Isaiah 53, or maybe it's Psalm chapter 2, or 2 Samuel chapter 7, or maybe it's something entirely different. We don't know. But I think it's safe to assume that he is interpreting to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. These are they which testify of me. And look at the people's reaction in verse 32. They were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. And Mark adds this little detail in his account in Mark 1.22. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The scribes, the typical Jewish teachers back in the day, uh, they were known for always quoting other teachers, like Rabbi so-and-so said this, and -and so-and-so said that, and it would just be one long quote, after another about this or that interpretation of the law. But Jesus, uh, Jesus doesn't need to quote anybody else. He doesn't need to refer to another authority because his word, look at the text, in itself possessed authority. Like he could speak definitively and clearly and plainly about the scriptures because this is the incarnate word of God speaking about the word of God. Uh, Teaching God's holy word in his own perfect holiness. Think about that. Without any sin to distort it, without any hypocrisy to taint it, uh, completely unmingled with any unbelief, I mean, you can just imagine the power of his preaching, how convicting and how soul-stirring it must have been. Maybe part of the astonishment uh, 
uh, came from the fact that he was just a carpenter's son. Uh, Though the disdain from familiarity that we saw in Nazareth seems to be missing here. At least Luke doesn't uh, mention anything. But the text is clear. The main thing, the thing that really astonished the crowds about Jesus' teaching was how it possessed authority. Which brings us now to the miracle, the exorcism. Verse 33, in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice. So, when it says an unclean demon, like this demon hasn't showered in a week. No, it's referring to the fact that he is morally evil. Because remember, Luke has said a lot about a different kind of spirit, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, in previous verses. So, look at chapter 3, verse 17. Chapter 3, verse 22, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 14, chapter 4, verse 18, right? All of those are references to the Holy Spirit. And so Luke goes out of his way to distinguish this spirit from the Holy Spirit. This is the spirit of an unclean demon. Now, looking for that matter, all the biblical authors, uh, they basically take for granted that their audience is going to be familiar with demons. Like, did you notice that there's no intro here at all? Uh, There's no explanation of like, well, this is what demons are, and uh, this is where they came from, and this is what they do, and and so on. He just kind of assumes that his audience is already familiar with all of that. But just in case you're not, the basic 30-second synopsis is that the God of the universe, uh, who created all things, Uh, He created a spiritual being that we would refer to as angels. Uh, And all the angels were created as good and uh, holy angels, uh, but capable of sin. And one of their number, uh, Satan, he leads a whole bunch of them in this rebellion against God. And uh, we call those uh, bad angels. We call them demons. Uh, And these demons basically exist to oppose God and his work and his people. And while demons cannot uh, possess a Christian, uh, because a Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, uh, demons can possess unregenerate people, like we see here in this story. Now, just to be clear, not every unsaved person is demon-possessed. Every unsaved person is in the kingdom of darkness, and thus captive to Satan. But a demon possession, like as we see it here in this story, That's a more uh, unique and extreme occurrence. But that's exactly what we've got in our narrative. A demon-possessed man in the synagogue. Now, some will look at accounts like this, and they'll say, well, you know, back then, uh, those superstitious and unsophisticated people, they they didn't really understand epidemiology and, and psychology like we do. Uh, And so uh, they just thought that every disease or ailment or mental illness was caused by some spiritual being. But that would be a mischaracterization of the scriptures. uh, Because while some afflictions, uh, for example, there's this uh, disabled woman in Luke chapter 13. uh, Some afflictions are uh, clearly attributed to demonic influences. Uh, That's not always the case. And in fact, if you look at Matthew 4.24, you can see how there's a clear distinction in this verse between demonic ailments and non-demonic ailments. So his fame spread through all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, 
those having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them. Uh, Now, demon possession in the scriptures can manifest itself in many different manifestations. Uh, Sometimes it causes muteness. Sometimes it causes seizures. Sometimes it causes uh, insanity. Uh, But at the same time, the Bible isn't attributing every disease and every ailment and every affliction to evil spirits. Uh, Rather, demon possession, uh, demon affliction, oppression, uh, it's just one category of those who are afflicted. Back to our narrative, right? We're not told how this uh, man's life was affected by the fact that he was demon-possessed. All we know is that he was demon-possessed. And as Jesus is teaching the word of God here in the synagogue on the Sabbath, uh, this man begins to cry out. Look at verse 34. Ha, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Ha is not like... Now, Jesus told a joke in his sermon, and the demon's laughing. Uh, it's this kind of difficult to translate word. Uh, it's kind of like an expression of panic. And then the next phrase, uh, what have you to do with us? It's literally like, what have we in common? And so maybe like we would go up to a stranger who, who's bothering us and say, well, what do you want from me? Like, what do we have in common? Uh, basically, the demon is begging Jesus to leave him alone. What do you want from me? Why are you attacking me? The demon understood. Like as he hears Jesus preaching, uh, he understood that the year of the Lord's favor was now here in Jesus. Or that like his shelf life is coming to an end pretty quickly. Have you come to destroy us? And you'll notice that this is not so much Jesus initiating the confrontation as much as it's the demon just being unable to stand in Jesus' presence as he is preaching the word of God. So maybe, like, on a typical Sabbath in the synagogue with uh, these scribes just kind of rambling along about these long quotes about, like, what kind of herbs to tithe and things like that, the demon's totally fine sitting amongst that teaching. But on this Sabbath day, with the Son of God preaching the word of God with authority— he just couldn't take it anymore. It's like what it says in John 3.20. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And in this case, it's not so much the, the demon coming into the presence of the light as much as the light of the world coming into the presence of this demon. And the demon just can't stand it. He just shrieks in panic. But verse 35, Jesus silences him casts him out, and maybe in like this last-ditch effort to cause harm to the man that he was possessing, uh, he throws him down in the midst of the people. Mark says that the, the demon convulsed the man. But Dr. Luke, uh, the good physician, he notes for us that the man remains unharmed. So what's the cause of all this commotion? Verse 36, they were amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And you see that close parallel. I think this is intentional between the crowd's reaction to Jesus' teaching on one hand and his miracle on the other. Look at verse 32. This is about the teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And now verse 36, about the miracle, all were amazed and said, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits. 
That's a theme we're going to see throughout this gospel. This link between Jesus' teaching and Jesus' miracles. Like he doesn't just do miracles to impress the crowds, uh, give them what they want, as we clearly saw in last week's account in Nazareth where he refused to perform for them. He does miracles to authenticate his teaching about himself. Uh, That is the authority that he demonstrates, uh, whether it's authority over diseases uh, or authority over nature or authority over these demons, uh, that authority that he demonstrates in his miracles It authenticates and it validates and it corroborates the authority of what he's saying, of his teaching. So through this story, Luke shows us that indeed what Jesus taught about himself, about him being the spirit-anointed Messiah from Isaiah chapter 61, that he is who he claimed to be. He shows that he's come to proclaim liberty to the captives. Set at liberty those who are oppressed by taking one who had been especially captive and especially oppressed by the demonic realm and releasing him from that bondage and that oppression. And so that's our story. Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 37. Now, in light of that story, let me give you four takeaways, uh, four ways in which this narrative should impact uh, how we live uh, and how we think. Takeaway number one is to beware of good theology. Uh, I think this story serves us as a warning to beware of good theology. Look at what the demon says in verse 35. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Let's do what we're never supposed, what we're never supposed to do. Uh, let's remove that quote from its context. Let's forget about who said it. Let's forget about what happened after he said it. Just take that statement at face value. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That is one of the clearest Christological statements in the entire New Testament. Uh, this demon has really good theology. And this demon's not alone. It's not it's like the, the valedictorian demon. Uh, look at the end of the chapter. We're going to study this section more next week. But for now, just look at verse 41 because it fits with the same theme. Uh, demons also came out of many crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And so we're told here that the demons know that Jesus is the Son of God, and that the demons know that he is the Christ. You realize that if you put those two ideas, those two truths together, you basically have Peter's great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what they're saying. And so they confessed that truth many months before Simon Peter ever did. Again, Demons have really good theology. And think about this story in contrast to the previous story. The one right before this one. The one about the people of Jesus' own hometown. The people of Nazareth who should have known him the best. How they didn't understand any of these things. He came to his own 
and his own people did not receive him. And so they're full of doubt and contempt and disdain. And what do they say? You're just the son of Joseph. And yet here we have these demons, these evil demons. And what do they say? You are the son of God. Uh, They got it. The people of Nazareth didn't get it. They got it. Demons have really good theology. But, 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 this is my point. Proper theology is never in itself enough. A correct understanding of who God is. You are the son of God. Good theology must then produce the proper response, that of faith and repentance. And it must lead to worship. Otherwise, it's completely meaningless. Well, that's James's point in James 2.19. You believe that God is one? You do well. Like, great job. Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons believe, though they know that Jesus is the Son of God. They know that he's the Holy One of God. And they're terrified. They're terrified because they know who they're dealing with. Have you come to destroy us? But instead of faith and repentance, instead of worship, that proper theology only produces in them hatred and opposition— And so their condemnation is just. Friends, I think this serves us as a very clear warning, especially in Reformed circles like ours, in which there's a commitment to biblical knowledge, a commitment to proper doctrine, a healthy desire for theology. But how easy it is for that pursuit to then become an end in itself at the expense of true worship. My friends, that should never be. A growth in knowledge, sound doctrine, good theology must never be an end in itself that must always lead to worshiping the God who we know better more. As is often said, a theology must lead to doxology. And so takeaway number one, Beware of good theology, Uh, not in the sense that good theology is therefore a bad thing, or in the sense that we ought to then not pursue it, or in the sense that, well, we should just pursue bad theology then. No, of course not. But beware of good theology in the sense of knowing your own heart's tendency to become puffed up with knowledge and to, like the demons here, allow that knowledge of the Lord to be divorced from your love for him. You need to be doing constant checkups on your soul, especially if you do love to study theology. Like, yes, I just finished such and such a book. Yes, I just listened to a few sermons on such and such a topic. Now I understand this difficult doctrine so much better. Well, great. But ask yourself, has that knowledge produced in my heart a greater love for the Lord? Has that knowledge produced in me a greater desire to honor Jesus Christ? Has that knowledge led me to worship him more? You have good theology? You do well. But even the demons have good theology. 
and they shudder. Takeaway number one, beware of good theology. Takeaway number two, be watchful. It's going back to those two extremes that I mentioned earlier in the sermon, right? One is ignoring the spiritual realm entirely, and one is being like overly obsessed to an unhealthy degree with the spiritual realm. Uh, I think generally speaking, I think most of us are more liable to fall into this category uh, of largely ignoring the spiritual realm. But reading a story like this, and reading the the many other references to the demonic realm that we're going to see in this gospel— well, it reminds us that demonic activity is very real. And more than that, it reminds us that we ought to then be watchful. First Peter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And so we need to be aware. Uh, We need to not be ignorant of their designs. And that awareness then needs to produce in us this sober-minded watchfulness. And so, for example, we need to understand that false religions, paganism, it's demonic in nature. Right? It's what Paul calls the table of demons in 1 Corinthians 10. And so we should keep ourselves away from its influences. Uh, we need to know that there is a demonic element to false doctrine, even as we read in our scripture reading this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 4, right? The teachings of demons. And so we need to be watchful about what we listen to and what we read and what we allow in this pulpit. Uh, we need to know Right? Think about the parable of the sower. Uh, we need to know that the devil and his demons will do everything they can to snatch the word away from those who have heard it. And so we should earnestly pray before someone gets up to preach that God would grant that the seed of his word would fall on good soil. Well, we need to know that demons work through division, contention, Uh, what James calls bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, which he then describes as earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And so we should be very vigilant that that kind of divisive biting and devouring would never enter into our body. And we need to take up the full armor of God. The belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of the gospel of peace— the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. We need to constantly be spiritually armed so that we might be able to stand against these and any other schemes of the devil. Takeaway number two, be watchful. Uh, Takeaway number three, and this is closely related to takeaway number two, is to take comfort in Jesus' authority. Yeah, this story shows us that demons are real. And yes, this story shows us that we should be sober-minded and watchful. But friends, don't let that be the main takeaway because that's not the main takeaway of this story. Uh, The main takeaway of this story is Jesus' authority. Authority not only in his teaching, but also in his miracles. His 
authority over the spiritual realm. His authority over demons. For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Uh, There's some ideas out there of dualism, right? That there's these forces of good and you've got these forces of evil and they're engaged in like this evenly matched cosmic battle. Uh, Jesus goes ahead by a little bit, uh, but then Satan comes right back uh, and they go back and forth and back and forth and it's like this uh, evenly matched boxing match. That's not at all what the Bible presents. No, the Bible presents an absolutely sovereign God who controls every single molecule of his creation, including the devil and all of his demons. Like Luther said, the devil is God's devil. Satan, uh, the demons, the entire demonic realm, they're completely under Jesus' authority. And so this story here in Luke 4, it doesn't show Jesus wrestling with this demon. It doesn't show him battling back and forth with this demon. No, this this story shows Jesus and his absolute 100% undeniable authority over this demon. Look again at the text. He commands the demon to leave the man. And what does the demon do? Does the demon fight back? No, the demon obeys. As Mark records the crowd saying, he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. He commands the demon to be silent. Uh, Literally in the Greek, that word is to muzzle, like you would muzzle a farm animal. You shall not muzzle an ox. That's the same word. The demon obeys. And so picture the way that a farmer has absolute authority over his animals well, that's the kind of absolute authority that Jesus has over this demon. Uh, look at how verse 41 words it. He would not allow them to speak. Uh, that's like the ultimate in authority. Like, not only can you not do what you want, you can't even speak. Jesus has complete authority. And friends, we, his people, should take comfort in that. Do you see the somewhat ironic connection to the temptation account? Because you'll remember what the devil promised to Jesus in that second temptation that Luke records. He shows him the kingdoms of the world. And what does he promise him? To you, I will give this authority. And maybe we didn't think much of that word back then, but now we know. The very thing that the devil once offered to Jesus— Authority? Well, here Jesus clearly demonstrates that he's got full authority over the demonic realm. Listen, demons are much more powerful than any of us. Like an angel, a single angel once wiped out 185,000 Assyrians. Uh, Demons could, in theory, uh, they could cause untold amounts of trouble. But believer... Uh, Your confidence, your assurance, your safety is remembering who is on your side. Who has saved you? Who has promised that he will never lose you? 
And so even with the dangers of the demonic realm, even with Satan as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, uh, even with all of that sober-mindedness and watchfulness that is appropriate, at the same time, believer, son or daughter of the Most High, you ought to take comfort, you ought to be assured in Jesus' absolute authority. Takeaway number three, take comfort in Jesus' authority. Fourth, uh, takeaway number four, take comfort in Jesus' victory. Those of you who like to send Christmas cards, here's my suggestion. Uh, Isaiah 9-6, uh, John 1-14, Matthew one twenty one, a wonderful uh, incarnation verses that you can put on a Christmas card. If you want points for like originality, like you want to stand out from the rest, here's a great verse about the incarnation that often gets overlooked. First uh, John three eight, at least the second half. Uh, the reason the Son of God appeared, right? The reason for the incarnation, Merry Christmas, was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why Jesus came, to destroy the works of the devil, to achieve an ultimate victory on behalf of his people over Satan and the demonic realm. And so now we're looking big picture, right? We're looking beyond just this one narrative, this one miracle here in Luke chapter 4. We're looking beyond this one demon. Because look at what the demon says as Jesus is driving him out. Luke one thirty four. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? You see that? Now, is it possible for multiple demons to possess a person? Yeah, in chapter 8, we're going to see a guy who's got like a legion of demons. But here in Luke chapter 4, we're dealing with a guy who's possessed by one singular demon. And so, why us? Like, is he the king of England all of a sudden? Like, what is he doing here? Well, this one demon realizes that what is happening here is about more than just him. That there is this cosmic level battle going on. Uh, Satan and his demons, uh, they've taken sinners captive. And so John 8 says that natural man is of his father, the devil. And 2 Corinthians chapter 4 talks about how the devil has blinded the minds of unbelievers. 2 Timothy chapter 2, unregenerate people are under the snare of the devil, being captured by him to do his will. But now, the spirit-anointed Messiah has come. He is proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. He is the incarnational jubilee. And as a part of that, he is going to release the captives. He is going to set at liberty the oppressed. Right? That's what this story is about. Now, ultimately, that refers to saving sinners, right? For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, delivering sinners like me and like you from our bondage to sin, from the kingdom of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of his marvelous light. But as a, as a part of that, as, a, as an initial preview of that, as like this little microcosm of that, Jesus drives this demon out of this man 
out of a man whom he had held captive, he commands him to leave so that this man's soul might be liberated. And so this demon, again, demons have good theology. This demon, as he's being driven out in this exorcism, he sees the bigger picture. This isn't just about him. This is like step one of the Son of God appearing to destroy the works of the devil. And so he asks, not just for himself, but on behalf of the entire demonic realm, have you come to destroy us? Well, the answer is yes. Yes, he has. The seed of the woman has come to crush the head of the serpent. But how does he do it? Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. One of my favorite passages in the Bible. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver, release, free all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It was by dying. It was through his death for sinners on the cross that Jesus declares ultimate victory over the demonic realm. That Jesus ultimately disarms the rulers and authorities and puts them to open shame, triumphing over them. Because it was through that death the forgiveness of sins that his death brought to his people, that Jesus takes captives from Satan. He enters a strong man's house. He binds him up. He plunders the house. And so sinners who repent and believe would be saved, right? Delivered from captivity to sin. Delivered from the the devil. Delivered from his oppression. And so now he leads us in triumphal procession. And since we've been talking so much about this demonic realm, think about your salvation in light of who the angels and the demons are, because that's exactly what the author of Hebrews does in the very next verse. Hebrews 2.16, Surely it is not angels he helps, but the offspring of Abraham. I mean, these demons that we've been talking about today, uh, this demon in this story, you think about it, there is no hope of salvation for him. They have no savior. Each and every one of them will be eternally punished for their sin. And here's the thing, God is 100% just to do that because he is giving them what their deeds deserve. God is under no obligation to show any of the fallen angels any mercy. Surely it is not angels that he helps. But does that not make the mercy of the gospel shine that much more brightly for us? God did not have to save any of us. He was under no obligation. He could have let every single one of us perish in our sin with an eternity in hell, and he would have been perfectly just in doing so. 
But in his mercy and in his love, he didn't. He helps the offspring of Abraham. He saves sinners like you and like me. And so believer, takeaway number four, take comfort in Jesus' victory. More than that, rejoice in Jesus' victory. For indeed, he has come to help the offspring of Abraham. He has come to seek and save the lost. He has come to deliver sinners like us from the captivity of our sin. We sang it this morning. Let's just meditate on these lyrics uh, just one more time as we wrap up. This is from A Mighty Fortress. Verse 3 says, Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. Again, the demonic realm is real and they are powerful. But we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Brothers and sisters, demons are real. They are powerful. But we need not fear because we who are God's people can take comfort. Comfort not only in Jesus' absolute authority, which he so clearly demonstrates in this narrative, but also in his ultimate victory, of which this narrative is but a foreshadowing. Let's pray.